First Samuel 7 in your Bible, please. I have been so excited about this sermon and in a manner of speaking this day. This day is kind of a, a perspective day. Sometimes uh, I, I feel I get a little down. Uh, you know, we preach a lot on holiness and sin and righteousness in this church, uh, but but in doing so, there, there are certain times just the way sometimes these sermons fall, where I feel like I'm just being mean. Uh, it's just me just telling you every week that there's, there's there might be problems and you need to find them and fix them. And and this is one of those weeks where we get to kind of look at the other side of things. We get to look at as we see the title of the message today, the reward of repentance. We get to look at the reward. This evening, we're going to look at a message, we're going to look in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 at a passage, and the message is, is, is going to be um, deeply, uh, prayerfully encouraging to your heart. And I trust that this morning's will be as well encouraging to your heart as we consider the goodness of God. One of the attributes of the God of the Bible, the true and living God, the God that we serve, the one who we call Jehovah, that is different from false gods, the other gods. A couple of weeks ago, we preached that message, no God but God, recognizing that God is, that Jesus Christ is God and there is no God but Jesus Christ. And as we, we think about the difference between our God and other gods, false gods, one of the, the, these differences is we might say God's disposition, God's reaction to a repentant heart. We've studied God's holiness over the past several Sundays and, and it should have formed in us a healthy fear of the God we serve. Last week we talked about not being afraid of God, but fearing God. And we were careful to emphasize that, 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 that God is not a God that we need to be afraid of, but He is a God that we ought to fear and reverence and recognizing his power and his holiness. We have been granted access by faith into a position of grace by the Most High God. We've been found accepted in the Beloved through the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. God is not a God that we're afraid of, but he is indeed a God that we serve. Jesus Christ, this God that we serve, is the most significant man in the history of the world. And his ministry, his life, and his death was and is the most significant time in the history of mankind. Romans chapter 5, verses 6-8 through eight tells us this, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth, God sent, God directed His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We just sang that song, Jesus Loves Even Me, and this is the reason why that song redounds in our hearts because it's not as if God loved us after we got good. God didn't wait till we got good to love us. We talked about that in Sunday school, right? He loved us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, He died for us. He died for us when we were at our worst, not when we were at our best. God sent Jesus Christ as the deepest expression of mercy. Mercy being not being given what I am deserve and the deepest expression of grace. Grace being given that which I don't deserve. Mercy not being given that which I do deserve. Grace being given that which I don't 
deserve. We have no strength in ourselves to find a right standing with God. And yet God's love towards sinners is so strong that he sent his sinless son, the son of God, God the son, the second person of the Trinity, to bear your shame, to bear your reproach, so that all who will humble one himself before the gospel of Christ and cry out to God for salvation will find the salvation that they seek. The gift of Jesus Christ is not, however, if I may put it this way, a completely new disposition from God the Father. It's not a new thing. Christ was not the first reflection of mercy and grace from our God. Rather, we might call Jesus Christ the pinnacle or the climax of the attributes that have always existed in God. In other words, the mercy and grace that God displayed through Christ have always been found in God. The Old Testament God was just as merciful and gracious as the New Testament God because it's the same God. He did not change. This is the term that we call immutability. That God is unchanging. He did not just suddenly one day decide to become merciful and gracious in Christ. He's always been merciful and gracious. Christ simply represents the pinnacle of that mercy and grace. The final solution to the sin problem. But God in every age has sought man and has allowed man to be right with him. And after several weeks of considering man's sin and man's poor choices before God uh, through Israel and for Samuel 4 and 5 and 6, this week we have the privilege of seeing Israel repent. And when we see Israel repent, what we're also going to see is a faithful, unchanging God do what he always does with the repentant sinner. He'll forgive them and he'll restore them to a right relationship with him. Here in 1 Samuel 7, in verse 1, we see the men of Kirjath-Jerim come and fetch the ark of the Lord. Remember, at the end of 1 Samuel 6, the people of Israel opened the ark of the covenant. You remember that? They opened the ark of the covenant and in return for their wicked disregard for the holiness of God, because holiness does not play favorites, God smote as many as 50,000 of them. We talked about the language debate there as to how many men were, were killed. I was talking to some folks afterward and as we were talking, yeah, I had mentioned I, I feel comfortable with that number. I feel comfortable if people had gathered from various places to rejoice over the ark that perhaps indeed as many as 50,070 people died on that day. But whether it was more or less, men were struck dead because of the wrath of God against their breach of His holiness. Now the men of Beth then sent to the men of Kirjath-Jerim asking them to come and to take this ark away from them. Kirjath-Jerim was the, would, would be the next city over from Beth Shemesh. It might have been considered a, a city of greater stature, a, a city of greater um, strength, perhaps a better position to hold the ark from a safety perspective, making sure that it's not taken again. And verse 1 tells us that they did indeed come and fetch the ark. They brought it to the house of a man named Abinadab, whose uh, son he sanctified. His son's name was Eleazar. And he sanctified his son to be the man that took care of the ark. Now, these were not Levites. Abinadab and Eleazar were not Levites, so they were not um, allowed by God to 
minister before the ark. But we see that he was sanctified to become the caretaker of the ark. We don't know exactly what that entailed. But Eleazar indeed became the one sanctified from ritual uncleanness that was charged with the well-being of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, between verse 1 and 2, we find 20 years pass. Okay, so fast forward 20 years. Eleazar has been taking care of the Ark of the Covenant for 20 years. For 20 years, the Ark abides in Kirjath-Jerim. For 20 years, Israel has operated without their most prized symbol of God's presence in the tabernacle. Kind of wonder what was going on in that tabernacle, right? I mean, for 20 years, they have not had the Ark of the Covenant. That is 20 days of atonement where the high priest has gone into the Holy of Holies and not had a mercy seat to sprinkle blood over. 20 years that the Ark of the Covenant has been in Kirjath-Jerim, not in Shiloh where the temple or the tabernacle is. This um, shouldn't necessarily surprise us. We recall the sons of Phinehas are probably the high priest now. And Phinehas was not a very good man. And so the high priest now probably didn't even really understand God, understand his word, know anything about God, may not have even actually missed the thing because they were pretty profane at this point. But at the end of this 20 years, something happens. The Bible says in verse 2 that all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. The idea here is that they began to recognize that God's presence, God's power, God's blessing was not with them as it should be. And they longed, they thirsted, they ached to be right with God again. All those who have a relationship with God in Christ know what it is to wander away from Him. And then you begin to feel that longing for restoration and for fellowship. There's an ache inside of you. Something's not right and you just want to get right with God. You, you need to get right with God. It's like a thirst in your spirit, a perpetual longing that cannot be satisfied outside of communion with the living and true God. And we'll see, at least in part, that this thirst was created by suffering. That the people had been under the oppression of the Philistines for these 20 years. They knew that, God is, that this is not what God wanted for them. They knew that God had promised them blessing and they weren't receiving it. And after 20 years, they were finally ready to say, okay, God, we'll start doing it your way. We need to find your way and we need to do it so that we can receive the blessings that you've promised for us. And this longing in many ways, must have been a very joyful thing for Samuel to witness, don't you think? You remember Samuel? Last time we saw him, it was Samuel chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 19 and 21, which told us that he was growing in the Lord, told us that he had become a renowned prophet, that he uh, revealed the word of God from the tabernacle in Shiloh, that he was declaring the word of God. For 20 years, he's been a prophet of God. And there's little doubt that Samuel had been ministering for this entire 20 years. He had been calling the people back to God. He had been crying for them to return to God. But one of the interesting things about the ministry of the prophet is that the ministry of the prophet had no real power in the nation itself. His only office was to declare the word of God. He was the messenger. Now, he had, if God endowed him with power, he had power. And of course, God had endowed him with authority, so he had authority. But he had no civil power. He, he was not a king. 
He was not even at this point a judge. He had no control over whether the people listened to him. The king had control over that, right? If the king said, we're no longer going to... And now there's no king in Israel yet, but, but if, if the king of Israel in, in later days or the king of a nation says, we're going to put away these gods from us, the gods were put away. Not necessarily because the heart of the people wanted to, but because the king said so. He had authority. He had civil power. The prophet had none of that. The prophet had no ability to say, put away the gods, and if you don't, off with your head. He didn't have that authority. Now, the judges had some authority, but Samuel was not even yet a judge. In this passage today, he's going to become a judge. But for these past 20 years, he had not been one. He was not a high priest. He was a prophet, a herald of God and of God's word. And now the people, after 20 years of Samuel's ministry, finally began to respond to God's word. Talk about long-term ministry, huh? Legacy Baptist Church has been in this community for five years this week. Next week, we're going to have our five-year anniversary. We're going to celebrate. We've got a cake. Uh, we'll, we'll do our dinner on the grounds. It'll be fun. It'll be a, a blessing. We'll take pictures. Five years in, in Buffalo. Samuel was 20 years preaching and crying in Israel before they responded. May God give us that kind of patience. And in verse 3, we see Samuel's solution to their lamentation after the Lord. He says this, If ye do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you and prepare your hearts unto the Lord and serve Him only and He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Samuel answers with what almost seems to be a little bit of skepticism. He says, If you do indeed return to the Lord, if you are in fact returning to God. If this is actually something that you want to do, I can tell you how. This is one of the happiest times for the minister. When the minister has someone come to him with a heart that's ready to seek the Lord, a desire to follow him, and simply says, how do I do it? Well, that's the best thing because you can just be the sign pointing. Do what the Bible says. And that's what Samuel says. That's what Samuel does. He points the way to restoration of fellowship and the way to restoration is found through repentance. To serve God alone by removing the false gods from their lives and preparing their hearts to worship God the way that God has commanded them to worship. And Samuel assures them of this, that if they will genuinely return unto God with their whole hearts through purposed repentance, evidenced by removing from their lives false gods and devoting themselves entirely to serving the true God, that God will be faithful. He will faithfully restore their relationship with Him and they will begin to receive the promises and the blessings that a proper relationship with God afford. In that case, in this case, the blessings that they were seeking was deliverance from the, the thumb of the Philistines. And that was indeed a promise that they could expect if they repented and returned to the Lord. Well, verses 4 through 6 tell us that Israel did exactly that. They responded to Samuel. They did what he said. Verse 4 says that they put away Balaam, they put away Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord God only. Now, if you're like me, as you're reading through this, in verse 3 you saw put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth. In verse 4 you see they put away Balaam and Ashtaroth. And you want to know a little bit something about these gods. 
Why in verse 3, strange gods and, and Ashtaroth? Why was, wasn't Ashtaroth included in these strange gods? Why mention Ashtaroth separately? I don't have all the answers to those questions. But let me tell you a little bit about the, the pagan deity system in the Old Testament. Baal, Baal is actually how you'd pronounce it. Baal was the supreme god of the land of Canaan. And he was, like in Egypt, the god Ra, or in Greek, the god Zeus, or in Rome, the god Jupiter. He was the supreme god. And like Ra, he was supposedly sourced in the sun. The sun would be kind of their um, material. They'd look at the sun and they'd say, there's Baal, Baal. Now, the word Baal was also a general word, however, for Lord or for God, which would be accompanied by other words to designate the specific nature of certain gods. So there was a god called Baal Gad. And Gad is a word in the Old Testament or in Hebrew that means luck. And so Baal Gad would be the Lord or the God of luck. And there was Baal Peor. And Peor was a mountain. Mount Peor was a mountain in Moab. And so their god was Baal Peor. He was the god of or the lord of Peor. They saw Peor as kind of the pinnacle of their their system. And so Baal Peor would be their god. Now, in Canaan, and especially in the, in the, the land of the Philistines, their god was Baal Zebub. Baal Zebub, which is more familiar to us. Oftentimes, Baal Zebub is a word that we'll see as a reference to Satan. Now, all of these gods are Satan, right? Every single one of these false gods, if you're worshiping a false god, a false deity, if you are worshiping a, in the spirit realm and you're not going to Jehovah God, then you're going to the false god. And the false god is the god who has sought to exalt himself against God from the beginning, the one who wants to be like God, Satan, Lucifer. And Beelzebub literally means Lord of the flies. And they saw flies as a good thing. And they, they saw flies as a good luck um, as, as um, healthy. So um, Beelzebub was kind of that pinnacle, supreme Philistine god. And so sometimes Baal would be mentioned as a specific god. Uh, other times it would be a general god or a general term given to a false god. Now the word Balaam, the word Balaam, anytime you see an em at the end of a Hebrew word, the em is actually a plural ending. And so Balaam is actually the plural of God, the plural form of Baal. And so it would be God's plural. And regularly referenced an entire worship system. When you see that somebody served Balaam, it's an entire worship system, a pantheon of gods, a plurality of gods. They served a, a false worship system called Balaam. The same could be said of Ashtaroth. Ashtaroth is the plural of Ashtoreth, who was a female goddess, false goddess, of course, often attributed with the moon and attributed as a companion of Baal. Similar to the concept of Baal, Ashtoreth is found in many cultures. As a matter of fact, Ashtoreth is still found today. Throughout various cultures, Asherah, Atar, Aftar, Aphrodite, these are all different derivations of Ashtoreth. And today, it's Ashtar. Ashtar 
Many people who have been abducted by aliens have been contacted by an alien named Ashtar. So much so that there's a religion out there called Ashtar. And these are people that worship star gods. Extraterrestrial beings collectively called the Ashtar, sometimes individually called Ashtar. And it's nothing more than the same Ashtaroth, Ashtaroth system that was being worshipped back in those days. There's nothing new under the sun, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes. Change names, change forms, change directions, change emphasis. It's still Satan worship. So as we consider the designation of the strange gods in Ashtaroth, in verse 4, Balaam and Ashtaroth, the message is that every false god, every false goddess, every false worship system, anything that wasn't Jehovah God was to be rejected, was to be put away from the people was to be seen as a false form of worship and completely removed. And when the people had done so, when they had cleansed themselves, when they'd shown a true heart of repentance through their actions, Samuel said that he would pray and he would intercede for them before God. And in verse 6, the Scriptures tell us that they gathered together in Mizpah. This is where Samuel said he would pray for them. Mizpah has some, uh, some significance in the Old Testament as far as a, a meeting place, but not great significance as, as, say, a place like Gilgal. But they gathered together to Bizpah, and the Scriptures tell us that they drew water and they poured it out unto the Lord. That's a symbolic act in the Old Testament of consecration and devotion. Recall that David, when he was given the water by his mighty men from the well in Jerusalem, they had to fight through the, the crowds to get to that water, and, and it was given to David, and he poured it out unto the Lord. He said, far be it for me to drink this water, and he poured it out into the Lord, giving it to the Lord, a, a symbol of consecration, a symbol of devotion. And it says that they fasted that day, and in, in that fasting they were declaring their sin, and they were petitioning God for mercy and for deliverance from their enemies. And here is where we see Samuel's ministry as a judge truly begin. The judges throughout the history of Israel, all the way up until the time where the kings were appointed, which will be coming soon, but the judges were men and women in history that were chosen by God to deliver God's people from their enemies after they had called upon the Lord in repentance. So they call upon, they're, they're in captivity, they call upon the Lord for deliverance with a repentant heart, and God raises up a judge to deliver them from their enemies. This judge would then deliver them and then would lead the nation. And the scriptures tell us that as long as the judge was alive, it was fairly typical for the nation to remain faithful to God. When the judge died, typically the nation would quickly spiral back into sin. We call it in the judges the cycle of apostasy. Now, verse 7 tells us that Israel's acts of repentance had what was perhaps an unintended consequence. They repent... And the Philistines noticed this gathering together at Mizpah. And whether it was Israel's intention or not to revolt, the Philistines saw this as some sort of gathering against them, a revolt, a revolution against their authority. And they were probably quite right in their assumption. That was the direction that things were going. And so, of course, this, this uh, brought the Philistines to a place where they were going to gather together and they were going to squash this. We're going to squash this rebellion before it can even start. If they're going to gather together, they're probably gathering together to fight, so we're going to go fight them before they can bring the battle to us. Now, naturally, this terrified Israel. 
Certainly they wanted deliverance. Certainly they were genuinely seeking the Lord to obtain that. But they were not prepared to fight against the Philistines. So the people did the only thing they could. Verses 8 and 9 tell us that they fell at the feet of God. They said, Samuel, cease not to cry unto the Lord for us. They begged Samuel to pray for them, that God would deliver them from their enemies. And this is exactly what God wants. See, this is what repentance is. This is why it's necessary. Because repentance brings us to a place of humility where we tell God, God, you need to do something I can't do. And we finally recognize that we can't do it and we need God to do it. And then God smiles and says, you finally figured it out. You can't do it. When you lay it at my feet, I'll do it for you. I'll do it for you. We find in life that God will often do this with us. Put us in circumstances that we simply cannot possibly handle. And He does that so that He can show Himself strong on our behalf. So that we'll have to fall at His feet and say, God, you're going to have to handle this because I can't. And God says, it's about time. Now watch me work. So as the Philistines attacked, the Scriptures tell us Samuel took a lamb. He offered a burnt offering holy unto the Lord. He burned the entire thing, showing entire consecration, reflecting that dedication once again. And now one of the most beautiful phrases in our Bible. At the end of verse 9, the Lord heard him. Isn't that a marvel? That a man would pray and the God of all creation would hear him. Israel repented of its sin. Israel aligned itself with God. Samuel, as the representation of Israel to God, prayed unto him and God heard him. Verse 10. Samuel is praying. The Philistines are approaching. Israel has no defense. And then the Scriptures tell us that the Lord steps in. And verse 10 says that the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the Philistines and discomfited them and they were smitten before Israel. That word discomfited often means to to slay or to utterly confuse. There was a great noise, so much so that literally it just shook the Philistines out of their boots. They were terrified. They lost all morale. They, They lost all organization. They were scattered and they were smitten. Israel gains the upper hand. Verse 11, the men of Israel, seeing the confusion, seeing the terror, go out of the city. They pursue the Philistines and they smite the Philistines all the way into Beth Car, one of the cities of the Philistines. And so there's a great slaughter of the Philistines this day. And it's not because of the power of Israel over the nation of the, of, of the Philistines. It's because of the power of God when Israel submitted themselves. And this is the theme. This is what God wants us to learn from this. We'll see that this victory was more than just a one-day victory. In fact, it would secure peace and independence for Israel for the next 20 years. They would also regain much territory that they had lost. Now, in response to this victory, we see the response in verse 12, and then we see some summary in verses 13 and 14. The response of Samuel to this victory, he responds the way a good leader does. He points right up to God and he says, this was God's doing. The scriptures tell us that Samuel took a stone and he set it between Mitzpah and Shen, two cities, and he called the name of the stone Ebenezer, which literally means a stone of the help. 
testifying to all that would see that stone for generations that God had helped them on that day when they repented. The Lord, he says, hath helped us. Now in verses 13 and 14, we see the fourfold result of Israel's repentance and their restoration of fellowship with God. The first result was that the Philistines left them alone. They had been defeated. Israel was no longer under captivity for the next 20 years. The second result is that the hand of the Lord weighed heavy upon the Philistines. So God began to weigh very heavy upon their nation. They found little success after that point. As Israel walked with the Lord, the enemies of the Lord, particularly those who were living in the promised land, the hand of the Lord weighed heavy upon them. The third result was that the Philistines were forced to give back cities that they had taken from Israel. Israel's land grew. Philistines, in a way to pacify Israel, gave them back cities. And then finally, the scriptures tell us that Israel's newfound dominance brought them peace with the Amorites as well, which was a strong tri- another strong tribe in the land of Canaan. So the Amorites saw that they defeated the Philistines and said, we don't want to have anything to do with Israel. We don't, we don't want to make them angry because look what they did to the Philistines. The Philistines are afraid. The Amorites are afraid. These are the promises that God promised them. If you will follow me, the nations will be, be afraid of you. You will dominate them. There will be no one that can stand before you in the day of battle. All of these blessings, the direct result of Israel's repentance and renewal of their commitment to serve the Lord and God's merciful acceptance of their repentance and the restoration of the blessings that he'd promised them. Verses 15 to 17 tell us that Samuel began to be a judge on that day over Israel until the day of his death. He represented the word of God to the nation and he led the nation in godliness. He became what we might call the first circuit judge. He traveled to four different cities judging the nation of Israel, Bethel, Gilgal, Mitzpah, and Ramah, where he lived. He judged the land, he answered questions, and he ensured that each tribe was following the Lord their God. Samuel would be the final judge in Israel's history. For after Samuel, the people will rebel and demand a king so that they can be like the nations that are around them. We'll talk about that in the weeks to come. I trust that as we walk through this passage today, the Holy Spirit's already pricking your heart already reminding you about the, the blessedness of fellowship. But we're going to actively apply some of these things today. And as we do so, I'd first like to make a, 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 an important distinction. Israel's repentance and restoration to fellowship with God brought them to a place of physical and material blessing. Their physical enemies were destroyed before the Lord. They began to prosper in the land once again. They found rest. They found peace. These blessings were given to this nation because these were the blessings that God promised to the nation in the Mosaic Covenant. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 through 14, the scriptures give these promises. Let me read to you verses 1 and 2. God says, And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and to do all his commandments, which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. God promised them peace, prosperity. He promised that they would not have any illness or any plague. He promised them wealth and happiness. These were the promises of God to Israel. They covenanted with God about these promises that if they followed Him, 
He would bless them in this way, the physical promises of the Mosaic Covenant. Now, likewise, Israel also had physical cursings that were placed upon them when they disobeyed God's covenant. We read about these in Deuteronomy 28, verses 15 through 68. I'm not going to read it all to you, but let me read to you verses 15 to 17. But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. Cursed shalt thou be in the city, and cursed shalt thou be in the field. Cursed shalt be thy basket and thy store. And so he says, your fields will be cursed, your cities will be cursed, your your uh, food supplies will be cursed, your storage will be cursed, everything will be cursed. If you obey me, I will physically bless you. If you disobey me, I will physically curse you. This is the covenant that they entered into on Mount Sinai called the Mosaic Covenant. This is the covenant that they reaffirmed in Deuteronomy here. And they again reaffirmed it with Joshua when they got into the land of Canaan. These were the conditions of the Mosaic Covenant. Now, the point that we need to make here is that the church is not Israel. You and I have not entered into the Mosaic Covenant. Nowhere in the scripture does it tell us that we have entered into the Mosaic Covenant. In fact, it tells us the exact opposite. We cannot claim material wealth and material peace and material prosperity as the natural result of right fellowship with God. Obedience to God is not always met with physical health. It's not always met with personal safety, is it? By the same token, however, here's the good news. The curses aren't yours either. The blessings aren't yours, the physical blessings, but you know the physical curses aren't yours either. We have not entered into the Mosaic Covenant. We are not going to be physically cursed when we wander away from the Lord like Israel was. We can't claim the physical blessings, so we don't need to be claiming the physical cursings either. The Scriptures tell us in Romans chapter 7, verse 8, that we are not under the oldness of the letter, Paul said. We are under the newness of the Spirit. We're not under the old covenant. We're under a new covenant. And this is essential for us to understand if we are going to properly apply this passage to our hearts. Because I'm not telling you that if you obey God and you're walking in fellowship with God that you can have physical blessings, that you will be physically healthy and wealthy and wise. I'm not telling you that today. The Bible doesn't tell us that. So then, Pastor, how should we learn this? What can we apply from this today? Well, I'd like us to close today with four applications. And the first application is this. Fellowship with God is initiated when you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. I'm speaking mostly to believers today. The other three points of application will be to believers. But uh, far be it from me to not give the gospel when it's so clearly a point where we can do so. Whether it's for someone in this room or whether it's for someone listening on the internet, what we need to remember is that fellowship with God is initiated when you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. If you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you cannot walk in fellowship with God because you are, as the Bible says, dead in trespasses and sins. 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. 1 John is a book on fellowship. But John summarizes something pretty nicely in 1 John 5, verses 11 and 12 as he's closing out the book. He says this, This is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. 
He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. This is the dividing line between those who are on their way to heaven and those who are on their way to hell. This is the dividing line between those who have the ability to walk in fellowship with God and those who cannot walk in fellowship with God. The difference between one who is saved, as we would say, and one who is unsaved, one who is a believer and one who is an unbeliever, is whether or not you have accepted Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as your Savior. Pastor, what does that mean? What does it mean to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior? Well, here's what you need to know. First, you need to know that you are a sinner. The Scriptures tell us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You have personally chosen to do things in your life that is contrary to God's Word, to God's will, to God's character, and to God's person. You've sinned. I've sinned. The question is, do you admit that you're a sinner? Do you know that you're a sinner? Do you recognize that you're a sinner? Will you confess? Will you state, yes, I have done things to offend a holy God? Or are you living in some form of denial? No, I'm okay. I'm a pretty good person. I, I, I do a lot of good things. Well, Isaiah 54, 6 tells us that we are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses, all those good things that we think we do, are as filthy rags. There's none righteous, the Scriptures tell us. No not one. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Second, you need to know that your sin must be paid for. God is a just and a holy God and sin must have consequences. Sin must have a payment and God in His holiness and in His justice has decreed that the payment for sin is eternity in a place of burning called hell. Jesus called hell a place where the fire is not quenched. Eternal suffering. The just penalty for offending a holy and righteous God. Third. Third, you need to know that there's absolutely nothing that you can do to pay your own debt. No amount of good works can undo the payment that you've incurred. Can undo your need to pay for your sin. In fact, the Bible tells us that. The Bible tells us that there's nothing that we can do. For by grace, Ephesians says, are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The very best that we have to offer God is still tainted by our own sinfulness so that you cannot get yourself to heaven. No amount of good works can get you to heaven. No amount of church attendance can get you to heaven. No amount of penance can get you to heaven. You do not have what it takes to get yourself to heaven. You do not have what it takes to secure a right relationship with God. You're a sinner. And sinners go to hell. Because that's the just payment. Well, that's bad news, isn't it? But you need to know fourthly this. Though you can't get to heaven on your own, there is a way to get there. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God looked down upon you from eternity past. He saw that you could not get yourself to heaven. He saw that you would sin, that you would rebel against him, that there was nothing you could do to earn your way back into fellowship with him. And he loved you so much that he determined to come down himself, manifest in the person of Jesus Christ, and to take upon himself human flesh, and to live upon this earth for 30 years without ever sinning once, 
and then to begin a ministry that would lead him to the cross of Calvary. And this man's name is Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us that Jesus hung on a cross and he died for your sins. Not for his own, for he was perfect. He was sinless, but for yours. And so the Bible tells us that God made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin, that you and I might be made the righteousness of God in Him. God punished, God the Father punished the Son, Jesus, for your sin so that you would not need to suffer this punishment yourself. And this is what's called the gospel, the good news, salvation from sin. Well, fifth, you need to know that Jesus didn't stay dead. The Bible tells us that three days after Jesus was put into a grave, God raised Him from the dead. And because Jesus claimed victory over death, those who accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, those who humble themselves before God, those who, in the words of Hebrews 6.1, repent or reject or change their mind about their dead works, change their mind about their sin and turn toward God, those who accept Christ as their Savior, will live as well. Have full assurance that because Jesus died and rose again and has power over death and hell, that those who accept Him, those who follow Him, those that walk in His light will live as well. This is called eternal life. Salvation from sin, what Jesus secured when He died. Eternal life, what Jesus secured when He rose again. Finally, you need to know that this salvation and eternal life has been purchased for you. But it is only yours if you receive it for yourself. The payment has been made, but you must accept it if you are to be saved. The Bible tells us in Romans 10.13, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you believe what the Bible says about who Jesus is, about what He has done, if you recognize that you are a sinner, that you cannot get yourself to heaven, if you are ready to stop trying and to place yourself at the feet of the one who can, would you do that today? Would you accept Christ as your Savior? If you have not done it today, would you make today the day? See, because fellowship with God is initiated when you accept Christ as your Savior, until you do so, you cannot have fellowship with God. I turn my direction for the last three points to those of you who are believers. Point number two is this. Fellowship with God is still found through obedience. Fellowship with God is still found through obedience. Israel found themselves in a pretty bad place because they were walking in disobedience. They worshipped false gods. They pursued the lust of their own flesh. And every man did that which was right in his own eyes. They were out of fellowship with God through their disobedience. And so they were not able to benefit from the blessings of being in a right relationship with God. They knew God. They were in a covenant with God. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about the physical covenant. They were in this covenant with God, but they were not walking with God. Therefore, they were not receiving the blessings and the benefits of fellowship with God. And what we need to understand is that obedience to God and to His Word, is always and has always been the means by which we maintain fellowship with God. 1 John 1, verses 5-7 through tells us this. This then is the message which we have heard of Him and declare unto you that God is light 
and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, this is writing to believers here, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. Fellowship with God is still found through obedience. The man who claims to have fellowship with God but is not walking in obedience to the Word of God is a liar. May I say that again? The man who claims to be walking in fellowship with God but is not walking in obedience to the Word of God is a liar. That's what 1 John tells us. It doesn't matter how often you read your Bible or how well you know your Bible. If you aren't obeying the Bible, you aren't right with God. It doesn't matter who your parents are or what church you go to or what church they go to. If you aren't obeying the Bible, then you aren't right with God. It doesn't matter how much money you have or how healthy you are or what the dominant opinion of Christian culture is. If you aren't obeying the Bible, you aren't right with God. Pastor, how do you know that walking in darkness is the same as not being right with God? Because verse 5 tells us that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If you're walking in darkness, then you are walking in that which is not God and not in God. You are walking out of step with God. And verse 6 tells us that if we have fellowship with God, when is that? When we walk in the light. We have fellowship. In Psalm 119, 105, the psalmist says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. If you want to walk in the light of God, this is how you do it. Walk in this book. See, fellowship with God is still found through obedience. Fellowship with God, number three, is still restored through repentance. Just like in Israel's day, fellowship with God is found in obedience. And, and fellowship with God is restored through repentance. What happens when a person who is saved, who is in a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ by grace through faith, decides to walk in darkness and disobey the Word of God? Well, we know from 1 John that we fall out of fellowship with God. We begin walking in darkness, therefore we have no fellowship with God. And in fact, the Bible tells us that this will happen. That until the day that we die, and Jesus, or Jesus comes again, every believer is still going to sin. We are going to, from time to time, walk in darkness. We are going to struggle with sin. In fact, 1 John 1, verse 8, we read verses 5 through 7, verse 8 says this, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So if you think that you don't sin anymore because you're a believer, you're lying. You're, you've deceived yourself, and therefore you've sinned. Okay, so if I'm sinning, but think I have fellowship with God, I'm a liar. That's not good. And if I say that I don't sin, I'm a liar. That's also not good. But if I will sin, and sin will cause me to fall out of fellowship with God, how do I maintain fellowship with God? And Samuel told the people how in verse 3, right? He said, if you do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth, 
from among you and prepare your hearts unto the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Samuel said, if you want to get right with God, if you want to receive the blessings of fellowship with him, return to God with all your heart. Demonstrate that return by getting rid of the sinful things in your life. Determine to serve God with all of your heart and God will deliver you. John says it this way in 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is not a verse for unbelievers, folks. This is a verse written to believers. This is a verse on how to be brought back into fellowship with God through confession, through repentance, and then He will forgive you, cleanse you, and restore you to fellowship with Him. This is repentance. Repentance brings forgiveness. Fellowship with God. Fellowship with God still found through obedience. Fellowship with God, still restored through repentance. Fourth and finally, fellowship with God is still the key to success in this life. Now, when I say this, I've already conditioned it, right? I'm not preaching a health and wealth, temporal, material, happiness gospel here. We know that the temporal and material prosperity in this life is not guaranteed to a believer. In fact, what did Paul say in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12? He says, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. This is not the testimony of a man who had everything going for him, is it? This is the testimony of a man who knew something of suffering. And lest we think that Paul was simply called to the particular ministry of suffering, and it's a not for all the believers today, let me reference 2 Timothy 3.12 for you, where Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Doesn't sound very health and wealth, does it? Fellowship with God, however, is still key to success in this life. We've mentioned already the distinctions between the church and Israel in that the promises made to Israel were physical and material because the covenant made with Israel was a physical, material covenant. The promises made to us, however, through the new covenant are not yet physical and material. That's coming one day in the kingdom. But the promises today are spiritual, spiritual blessings. But regardless of the distinctions, the principle remains the same. And it becomes a very strong lesson for us today. When Israel repented of their sin, when they realigned themselves with God's will through God's word, they saw immediate restoration of fellowship with God and they immediately begin to see the promised blessings of God work themselves out through the covenant in their lives once again. And in that very same way, when we as believers repent, of our sin, when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and we get on our knees and we say, Lord, forgive me, and we repent and we turn from that back to God and realign ourselves with God through His Word, we have the privilege of immediate restoration to fellowship with God, immediate provision of spiritual power and blessing known as the fruit of the Spirit. And it can once again be realized in our lives. And it is only when we're walking in fellowship with God that we can possibly realize true spiritual success. Because it is only when we're walking in true fellowship with God that God is able to do for us and in us 
what we cannot do for ourselves. When Israel persisted in sin, even when they tried to bring God into the battle by bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the battle with them, they fell because they were not walking in fellowship with God. On the day they repented, God immediately fought the battle for them. And they watched in amazement as victory was achieved. In like manner, when the Christian persists in sin, even when we still try to do God things, right? We go to church, we read our Bibles, but we're persisting in sin, unrepentant sin, there will be no spiritual power because your sins have separated you from God. But in like manner, when we restore our relationship with God through confession and repentance, the reward of repentance is restoration, immediate restoration to the end that spiritual success can be attained. What is the success that I speak of? It's the success in Romans chapter 6.14. For sin shall not have dominion under you, over you, for you are not under the law but under grace. The promise of living free from the dominion of sin, this success is found through fellowship. Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. The promise of living free from condemnation of sin is found through fellowship. Philippians 4, 6, through, 6 and 7, Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The promise of having the peace of God ruling and reigning in your heart is found through fellowship with God. 1 Peter 2, 12 having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. The promise that as you live an honest life and fellowship with God before an unbelieving world, they will see your good works and they will glorify your Father, which is in heaven. That you will be a testimony to those around you of the goodness of God and the glory of God all the way to the throne of judgment. You will be a testimony of God's grace and love. Unless we forget or ignore the obvious. May I just say one more thing about success that is obtained through fellowship with God? We still live in a society that enables us the freedom to live according to the dictates of the Word of God and of our conscience. Barring an act of mercy of God, this freedom may not be, a be around for very long, but why we have it, while we have it, all we who know Christ and obey Him can testify that living by the precepts of God's Word, though not a guarantee of physical and material wealth and prosperity and health, do regularly lead to that, don't they? A life of blessedness. Living a life of honesty and integrity and purity and righteousness has tangible physical benefits in this life, doesn't it? Walking in fellowship with God means rejecting the lusts and desires and compulsions of this world, the very sins that drown men in sorrow and despair. And much sorrow and despair in this life is avoided as we obey the Word of God, isn't it? So though the promise of, of material wealth and health and prosperity are not given to the believer in a relatively free society, Oftentimes we will see those things come to pass as we live righteously before God. As our society spirals into despotism, we'll see less of that. 
We have referenced 1 John. I've, I've walked through 1 John 5 through 9, 1, 5 through 9 this morning. It's definitive teaching on scriptures uh, being... Uh, it, it's the definitive teaching in the scriptures, excuse me, on fellowship. And John began this epistle, verses 1 through 4. Notice what he says in verse 4. He says that the reason why he's going to write all this stuff to them is that their joy may be full. That he says through fellowship with God, they can experience the very deepest realities of personal contentment and joy. For you who are believers in this room today, have you ever tasted the joys of complete submission to the one who, has, who loves you and who you trust with all your heart? To those of you who are believers today, have you ever yielded yourself enough to God Have you ever placed yourself so much in His care that you've experienced the joy and release that comes from completely denying yourself and walking in His ways alone? This city is full of Christians and professing Christians who are convinced that serving God is about giving up what you want and giving up anything fun. Did you know that? There's a whole society out there of Christians and people who believe they're Christians who think church and religion and Christianity are all about denying anything fun in this life. All about denying anything that you want in this life. If you want it, then it's probably not right. They're convinced that serving God means losing something. But if the example of the nation of Israel should show us anything today, it is that when they gave up what they thought they wanted, what the world around them told them they wanted, what their sinful flesh said they wanted, and did what God wanted, they gained everything that they really wanted. (laughs) Right? They gained the health and the peace and the prosperity that they were seeking when they were finally willing to yield themselves to God. They gained the joy that they sought. They gained the victory that they sought. They gained the peace that they sought. They gained a true relationship with the living God. They gained victory over their enemies. It wasn't a loss. It was a gain. They gave up something that was so inferior to gain something so much greater. And serving God is not about sacrifice. It's about replacement. It is a releasing yourself from the inferior and empty promises of this world and replacing them with the eternal, supreme, lasting, and fulfilling promises of God. It is giving up that which cannot satisfy for that which satisfies completely. It is yielding yourself to God only to find that God gives you Himself in your place. The reward of repentance and of a life lived in fellowship with God is the reward of the righteous. And it is far above anything that this world has to offer. This is the reward of fullness of joy. A reward only seen by faith, but no less tangible than anything that we can see with our eyes. As we close today, let me ask you, have you experienced that? Are you living in that fullness of joy? The fullness of joy that comes from walking in the light. That comes from walking in fellowship with God. I told you I was excited about this message because it's, a, it's an exciting one and it's a, it's a joyful one and it is because I'm here to tell you that fullness of joy is there for you. That the God of all peace has 
established, erected a framework for us to live in joy. Let's live in it today.